Our message this morning is a one-word title called With. That's W-I-T-H, With. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. If you're looking for Deuteronomy, you need to start in Genesis, move to Leviticus, Numbers, then you'll be in the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. All right. Deuteronomy has to do with the second giving of the law. Uh, Exodus records the very first time God ever spoke it. Deuteronomy records the time period that Moses has it written down right before they go into the promised land. And uh, we're going to be in the eighth chapter. So tell me when you're in the eighth chapter, first verse. Look at y'all. Three of you were there. Where are the rest of you? Okay. If you're new to this system, what's happened is I preached a message about being where God told you to be when He told you to be there. And ever since then, when people turn to Scriptures in our church, they holler out there to let me know that they are there. Okay. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.1 says, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to give your forefathers. There are many reasons that the Lord gave the law. Uh, lots of them have been popularized, meaning that it points out sin, that it is uh, a weight on God's people, that it uh, is a restraining factor, all of which are true. But you'll see no, many times in the book of Deuteronomy that it's also meant for life. He says, I want you to follow these commands so that you may live and increase. Okay? So God had a positive motive. Another time in Deuteronomy, uh, the sixth chapter, actually fifth, right, right before the chapter break, He says, oh, that their hearts were inclined to follow Me. Then it would go well with them. Right as He's giving them the law. So God always has multiple facets when He does something. But having said that, He says that He gives them these commands so that they will live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to give their forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. Now, those of you that have spent years in the academic arena have considered that tests were simply put there as a means to punish you by your teacher, right? Especially a pop test. My parents are educators, and I often wondered uh, whether or not that was the case. The truth is, tests are given so that the teacher has some idea of your progress, some idea of what it is that you've retained. And when God puts you in a difficult position, it does a couple things. One is, it humbles you. It reminds you you're not in control of life. God is. And a second thing that it does is it allows God to observe your actions and determine, are they getting it or not? They've got my word. They heard this. They heard that. But are they applying it? And the test is a great chance to do that. He moves on to say, He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Here's another thing. He says that God basically allows a problem to come into your life, hunger, so that He can meet the need of that problem, feed you, and then from that you learn something. You learn I don't really need anything except God's Word. He did this for Israel for that purpose. He caused them to hunger, then He fed them so that they would learn to live on His Word. Let's see what else He does. He says, Your clothes did not wear out, 
Your feet did not swell during these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. It looks as if also God's blessings were in their life as a part of their relationship. Clothes didn't wear out. Feet didn't swell. That's a good thing, right? Nobody wants swollen feet. Poor Cass is pregnant. Her feet are swelling. Nobody likes that. I'm not pregnant and my feet are swelling. This is not a baby. This is food. God's blessings are in their life. And what did He say after that? God disciplines you as He disciplines a son. The reason that I said this is all of this has to do with a God that is very interactive. We have uh, very often a default mind setting that says if there is a God, He's aloof. He's somewhat snobbish, distant from the creation. People even view Him with some sadistic type nature that says He allows all this to go on just to uh, amuse Himself. Not so. The Bible tells a story of a God who is intimately involved in our lives. He wants us, the very first part of this said, to live and increase. God wants you to experience life to the fullest amount, and He wants your life to spread. In fact, He put man on the planet and said, replenish it. Go forth and multiply. Subdue the earth. There was a problem here, and God put somebody in His image that could multiply themselves so more of God's presence and image would be all over the earth. This is God's desire for your lives. That He might increase you and that you might live. Then it says that He tests you in order to know what's in your heart. This is any good teacher. He wants to know where you are in the process so that He can find out what He still needs to teach you. And then He allows needs to come into your life so that He can meet them to teach you to trust Him. He brings blessings into your life, but He also disciplines you. Hebrews 12 teaches us that if you're not disciplined, you're not loved. Doesn't all of this sound like a very interactive God? It really does. A God who's intimately involved in His people and His creation. Look at the sixth verse, then we'll move on. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and revering Him. One of the things that needs to change in our uh, churchianity, if you will, not just in American versions of Christianity, but anywhere that the church has become an institution and the institution flourished for a time and now maybe has some dust in its corners, there is a problem. We have lost a concept that says, observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and revering Him. To the Hebrew people, everything that had to do with trusting God Everything that had to do with belief or faith in Him had to do with an action. So they did not describe their relationship with God as believing in Him. They described it in terms of action. I walk with Him. Implying that He tells me where to go and I go. He tells me what to say and I say. He tells me to jump and I ask how high. Their idea of a relationship with God was what do we do. In fact, in the book of Acts, the very first sermon that Peter ever preaches, the people are cut to the heart. And the words that they respond with are not, what shall we believe? They're not, what church doctrine do we accept? They're not, what should I cherish in my heart? The words that the people, 3,000 of them in unison, respond with are, what shall we do? 
This means that the church has emphasized to the point of a flaw its theology and its belief systems. The only reason that theology and belief systems are important are to show us what to do. That's what they're there for. When we've taken doctrine and made it a master rather than a servant, a servant that teaches us what to do, not a master that tells us who we can and can't associate with, we've made a mistake. God is an interactive God. And these terms that He's describing literally have to do with sonship. See, I have a son, and I want him to... I have two, actually. But we're going to talk about this one because he's in here. I want him to live well. I want him to increase. I hope he has a family. Are there any parents out there of children that don't want grandkids? Of course you do. Of course you do. It's a natural God-given desire. I, throughout his life, put him in situations to see whether or not he's getting it. If I show him how to change the oil, the next time I put a wrench in his hand and wait to see if he knows how to do it. That's because he's my son. When he's hungry, I feed him to teach him that God provides for us and his daddy provides for him. There are blessings in his life, like an allowance. Yeah. There's discipline in his life. Surely you can say amen to that one, Judah. (laughs) Healing warmth flows from my hand through his body. It corrects his whole behavior if it's done repeatedly and with force. Right? This is All of this is because I want Him to walk in a certain way. Our God is no different. He treats us like sons. He wants us to walk with Him. Do you remember how the Bible story starts? Adam is walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. See, we need to switch in our thinking from Christianity being something that we believe to being something that we do. And when we do that, when there's a change in our thinking that says no longer, well, I believe in Jesus, so I'm okay, but we say my belief in Jesus has caused me to do this for you, all of a sudden Jesus has hands and feet on the earth. Too long in the American church, because of the devil's lies, the body of Christ has been an amputee quadriplegic. We call ourselves the body of Christ, but the truth is we will not leave our building. We can't get out of the chair that is our pew. No longer, saints. The reason our church is interested in going to other countries, interested in going to other neighborhoods, interested in going outside of these walls, is because of what we put on the sign at the back of the church. It says, perform out there what you have practiced in here. Now, if I wanted to train somebody, it's possible through distance education that maybe I could do it on the Internet, but everybody would agree the most effective way to train anybody is to spend time with them. So I want you to think about that, and let's turn to Deuteronomy 6. Isn't that great? See, I try to arrange these where you're just not worked to death, because it is so hard to use your fingers. <laughs> By the way, if you talk to me in here, I mean, it won't hurt my feelings. And if I ask you a question and nobody answers, I mean, Gabe's already got his Ray Charles sunglasses on, I, I would think you were sleeping. He had an eye surgery. Now he has eyes that see. In Deuteronomy 6, starting in the first verse, the idea of an action-oriented God who wants to be with us. These are the commands and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live 
by keeping all the decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy a long life. Think about this for a moment. God speaking to His people said, here's what I want you to teach them. And not just you teach them, but you, your grandkids, and any kids that come after that. God intended to invest something in each of you. He intended for that investment then to move on to the next generation, your kids, and to their kids, your grandkids. God wanted to be able to invest a relationship, an idea, an attitude, a way of life in John and Joy that would show up in John and Joy's children's children. And if every generation did that, what we would have is a growing, powerful body of Christ on earth like yeast that works its way through the whole loaf. But most of the time when we think of ministry, we think of it as somewhere outside of the family. And yet all ministry requirements in the Bible Start with what you do inside of your own home. You ever met a pastor whose kids were horrific? That's sad. I'm sorry. I've really worked hard for that not to be the case. Kids are kids. Having said that, when you meet a pastor whose kids are horrific, you really need to take a close look at the pastor. Because the Word of God says that a man of God's family affairs must be conducted in a certain way. In fact, it goes so far as to say, if a man can't uh, conduct the affairs of his own home, he's not worthy of doing it in the church. We overlook all of that. You know what we look for in pastors? Can you tell us what we already know about God, but in a new and more interesting way? Yeah. In fact, we'll agree on our own little points on the board and say, hey, this is what we all agree about God. Nothing outside the box. God fits neatly in the box. Now tell me about it in a new and more exciting way. Entertain us and raise money. Because if we have a bigger gym than the guys across the street, we're a success. Right? Because that's what God wants. He wants gymnasiums and donuts. So you can feel everything in every way. That's what He wants. No, it's not what He wants at all. He's looking to be interactive with His people that they might walk in His ways. If we sit in here and you hear what I say week after week, the book of James says, if you hear only, where's the blessing in that? We must become doers of the Word. So, well, I'm waiting for the institution to show me what to do. Why? The institution doesn't know what to do. God is a living, breathing thing. He's living and active. We don't need somebody to give us Christian witness training. If you're a Christian, how much training do you need to tell people what's happened to you? See, all of that is trying to shove God into a nice, neat, marketable little box. I found out God will not live in that box. What He wants people to know is we do exactly what He tells us because we love Him. And that means that He may tell you to do things other people would not do to show them that you love Him. And some will say you're crazy. That's okay. They always have. You show me a prophet that was not stoned or killed. Stoned, I mean, in a bad sense. They're all bad. I'm just kidding. Rocks. Yes. It's good I have family here today. Yeah. See, God, God is interested in being completely invested in His people and His people completely invested in them. Hear what He says next. Hear, O Israel, and be careful 
to obey so that it may go well with you that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your forefathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That Shema Ya Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ehad. This is the anthem of Israel. And above all, it means that although God has various workings and multiple parts, in essence, He is one God and the only one worthy of serving. This is a cry of monotheism, but it's much more than that. It's saying in our lives, we will have no competitors, no gods beside our God, none alongside Him, only God and God alone. Well, nothing in the belief system is challenging to that. In fact, probably everybody in here intellectually ascends to that idea, but let me ask you something. In our walking with Him, is He the only one we're walking with? Or are there areas and times of our life where we simply divert a little bit and go a different direction? Because His way is just a little too hard, hurts my feet a little too bad. I was recently with a man of God who is powerful in speech indeed and does amazing things. But he said, boy, I'd like to... And what he would like to do was something that was not godly. Sometimes when men of God see injustice, you want to fix it, right? We all have the right to do what God tells us to do, to go with Him wherever He goes and Him with us. And when he said, boy, I'd like to, I thought, be careful. Out of the abundance of a man's heart does his mouth speak. And you're saying you would like to do evil. That's a God besides our God. Now, no sooner did I begin to think that about him did all of those thoughts pop up in my mind of all the things that I would like to do? You ever heard that somebody hurt a child and you thought, boy, I'd like to be there when that happens? Why? Why? Are you more efficient than God? You're stronger than God? Smarter than God? More just than God? So why? Why would you like to be there? Because maybe we're our own God besides God sometimes. Maybe the biggest problem is we'd like to be a God to ourselves and choose what we do and when we do it. Doesn't this go all the way back to the original problem with mankind? God says, first words to man, you are free to eat anything in the garden. Isn't that goodness? God wasn't into diets. He said, you are free to eat anything in the garden except from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you will surely die. You are free to do anything, but don't do this because I want to retain in your life the right to tell you what is good for you and bad for you. Well, we made it one chapter. And we said, "Mm, God, I'd like to be a God to myself. Isn't that what the devil told Eve? Oh, the day you eat of it, you won't die. You'll become like God. Yeah. Well, the same problem's still at work in our lives. It's still at work in our lives and we need to make our choices wisely. But none of this is our topic today. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You stay right here by one. Tell you something. Deuteronomy 24.12 says something uh, amazingly redundant. Okay, If I said, Cassidy, I want you to sit right here. Right there, Cassidy. That'd almost be condescending, wouldn't it? Because she's an intelligent adult and she heard me the first time. Why would I repeat it again, huh? But Deuteronomy 24.12 says, Moses, I want you to come up to the mountain 
and stay on the mountain. That's what it says in NIV. Not so bad. In Hebrew, it doesn't say that. It says, I want you to come up upon the mountain and be on the mountain. How weird is that? If you come up on the mountain, where else would you be? I heard a teacher named Rob Bell share this, and it blessed me. It blessed me a great deal. Because I realized how much like Moses I am and how God has to deal with me. God knew that if Moses had to work to ascend this mountain, he would be thinking about how he was going to get up there and what he was going to do to get there. Then if he got on top, while he was up there, he'd be thinking, how am I going to get down? And what am I going to do when I get down? And he could be physically standing on the mountain but never be on the mountain. Can you not relate to that at all? The same teacher, Rob, began to share a story about his children that I can relate with. His children don't say, Daddy. They say, Daddy, 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 Daddy. Anybody in here been around my daughter, Abigail? Yeah, she can say Daddy a record number of times without a breath. Her lungs are only this big, but she can do it 47 times, I swear. Maybe that's evangelistic, but she can say it a lot. Why, though? Is it maybe because she's noticed I can be sitting right there with her, right next to her, maybe even playing a puzzle game with her, but not really be there with her? My thoughts are somewhere else. My wife sometimes says, I want you to spend time with me. I'm like, I've been in the house all day. But I haven't been with her. I was with CNN. No, I was with Fox News. Or I was with somebody, but not with her, even though we were sitting next to each other. Those of you that have been married a while know you can share the same bedroom and be worlds apart. God said, I want to be with you with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. What God is saying is not only am I interactive, but I want a hundred percent of your devotion, a hundred percent of your attention. I want you to be with me. This is what it means to walk with God. Walking with God is not a list of do's and don'ts. The law was never intended to be that, although it became that and became all system of righteousness. It was intended to show people, if God were walking in front of you, this is what His walk would look like. In fact, to take it a step further, He incarnated Himself in a first century Galilean Jew called Yeshua, God's salvation, And people who followed Him were followers of the way, meaning they walked in the way of Yeshua. In other words, if God were going to walk on the earth in the flesh, walking out the law perfectly, it would look just like Jesus' life. What all of this was intended to do in these instructions was to give us a way to increase and live because God wanted His presence all over the earth. If you had the image of God that He's a big angry God with mixed drumsticks above your head and He wants to wrap you across the head. I had a teacher, a teacher in the seventh grade named Miss Cargyle. And I wouldn't say this on tape, but surely she can't be alive still. She was older than Methuselah back then. And if I held my hands wrong on the typewriter, the old manual kind, I know some of you people born in the 80s don't even know what that is. But the manual kind with correction tape and the whole deal. She would slap me on the top of the head with a ruler. Yeah. That's why I got that bald spot right there. She hit me on top of the head with a ruler when I didn't do something right. Many years that was my vision of God. Is that He was watching me. Ah-ha! I got you! You didn't do it right. 
And if you forget to repent tonight and say it in a certain way, I'm going to burn you, buddy. That's what I thought. And so I was confessing. I stole the candy bar when I was a little boy. I told my sister because I was proud. She blackmailed me for about two months and then told my parents anyway. I was 18 years old and I was still confessing that sin because my vision of God was that God was looking for reasons to squish me. The Word does not paint that picture. He is looking for reasons to forgive you. He is looking for reasons to restore you. He is looking for any action that He can bless. Anything. So that He might show you when you're hungry, buddy, I can feed you. I want to be with you. Amen. So God says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. You want to do a fun word study sometime? Find out what that word means. It's like you take a heavy weight and push it into wet leather and it leaves its mark on the leather. Or a ring into a wax seal. To impress upon your children implies an action and a great deal of force. See, Judah? It is biblical. But let's go further and talk about this. It says, Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. For just a second, I want, I want you to think about this. Israel has been picked on for years by theologians that have read Paul's writings and misunderstood. They've missed a point. Paul is an Israelite. He's not against the law and he's not against the Jewish people. He is an observer of the law and a Jewish person. He was against a misapplication of the law. And watch this. I want you to see if we would really be any different. If God appeared right here in the flesh, He stood on Nick's drum and He said, I want you to talk about Me when you walk along the road, when you go in and out of your houses, when you lie down on bed, uh, and any other list. Are there not churches that would write that as a point of doctrine and say whenever you're walking, you must be speaking of the Lord? Whenever you lie down on your bed or get up from your bed, you must be doing this? And we know we're Christians because this is what we do. Are there not still further Christians that would think that they are Christians because they believe those points of doctrine? God's intent here was not for them necessarily to every time they were walking along the road to must be speaking of Yahweh God. He was trying to teach them what the intent of the heart is. He's trying to teach them that to love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, and all of your strength means in all of your activities, acknowledge Him. See, is that legalistic? That's not legalistic. You say, well, those Jews are so legalistic. No, some of them got this. That's why you have a book in your hand that explains it. Some of them got it. The question is, do you get it? Let's listen to how God describes a relationship with Him. Talking about Him at home. Walking with Him along the road. Talking about Him when you go to bed. Talking about Him when you get up. Tying His Word to you. Binding His Word to you. Writing His Word. Would that be the descriptor of a Christian that you've heard all of your life or would it simply be, believe on Jesus. 
Let's be honest. The descriptor that we usually... And there's nothing wrong with it. I believe on Jesus. My belief compels me to do certain things. The good works He's prepared in advance for me to do, Ephesians 2.10 says. My point is, the description of what it is to trust God has to do with talking, walking, going, tying, binding, writing. They're all action terms. Next time somebody says to you, well, I'm a Christian, say, great, what do you do? How many people have you met that said that they're a Christian and their life does not show it? I was one of those Christians for years and years. What it meant to me to be a Christian was to be able to quote Romans 9, 10, and 10 and to attend church. I could do that and much more, but I was no Christian. Because Christian means like Christ. Do you notice Jesus running around quoting Scripture and doing nothing? Somebody find that story in the Bible. It's one of the, it must be in the book of Second Opinions or Hezekiah or some book that doesn't exist. Where did Jesus run around, hand out tracts and do nothing? No, He liberated the oppressed. He fed the poor. He loved those nobody else would love and He came near to those like lepers that nobody else would come near to. How many church people do you know that will go near to people that the lost won't go near to? Those people, that's a crack house. So what? So what? Are you so weak that you can't go there without taking crack? Go examine your faith again. But those people don't believe in Jesus. Exactly. Do you go fishing in an aquarium? <laughs> Let's go evangelize the church. Well, uh, that might need to be a true statement, but think about that. God wants to walk with you, talk with you, write with you, tie with you, bind with you. Sounds a lot like a marriage, doesn't it? You know, Jewish weddings are taken from these texts. You stand under a hope of it is a cloud covering, like at Mount Sinai, when God expressed His heart's desire to His people. He made promises to them. You could call them vows. They made promises to Him. And they were supposed to be one people with God. Yeah, not so ugly as maybe some have thought. Let's look at Deuteronomy 6. The 20th verse. In the future, when your sons ask you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord your God has commanded you, tell them. <laughs> How do you know that your sons will How could you possibly know that? Because if you are walking with the Lord, talking with the Lord, binding, writing, all of those things that He said to do, how could your kids be with you and not ask. Anybody in here raise children? Raise your hand if you've raised a kid or are in the process. How about that? Don't all kids go through a crazy, beautiful, slightly annoying, questioning phase? Why? 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 Uh, Judah has got a beautiful, inquisitive mind. And I've learned... I don't know, baby. Ask Matthew. <laughs> God knew, God knew that if you were going to impress things upon your children, they needed to be with you. So you would interact along the road. You would interact when you tuck them into bed. When you wake them up from bed, you would write with them. You would bind the words on them so you could talk to them about it. He knew that you being with them would disciple them. There was no daycare. 
It's a wedding. I'm not talking about daycare. It's a necessary evil, and that may be the exact right term. Because of men and women's fallen nature, things happen where we have to do certain things. But you know what there should be no daycare for? You and God. If you want His ways impressed upon you, you have to walk with Him. Many people view Christian scholastics like seminary as merely a daycare. What they're looking for is, I need somebody else to force upon me a relationship with God because I want it, but I don't know how to be with God, so I'm going to get somebody else to teach me what they got from being with God. Now, I'm not against teaching. Those of you that know me know that's all I do. Almost every night of the week, I'm teaching somebody somewhere. And when it's not nighttime, it's daytime, and we're doing that somewhere. But when what you want is to go sit in the class to come out with a degree that says, look, I'm somebody. Isn't that just like a daycare with God? Hmm. As I began to think about this, I thought, you know, God, you're amazing. To teach my son, he does need to be with me. So I've been taking him on mission trips. I've been trying to do everything that I can with him. And a neat thing's happening. My middle one wants to go now. Before, they only wanted to go with mom. I'd want to go with mom too. She's better looking. She's nicer. She's slower to anger. All of those things. Right? But now they both want to go. And my little girl does too. I said, you know, Lord, this is amazing. If I'm going to teach them, they need to be with me. Then I started to think about our King Jesus. Turn with me to Mark 10. When you spend time with people, you can't help but have questions about their life. Come on to Brothers Fast! It's the goatee. It's helped you. If we could get you some small glasses, you'd also raise your IQ immediately. I really do like it, David. It looks good. His daddy's been giving him a hard time. You find that daddies want their sons to be in their exact image. That's a perfectly normal thing. And it's okay if our daddy is God. We need to be in his exact image. Other than that, what daddies should appreciate or that there's a little bit of them in their children, but their children are diverse because God is big. And little boys should outshine their daddies, and they should learn to do things that their daddies never knew how to do. You need to be very careful that when your kids are doing something like backing up a trailer, you don't push them out of the way and say, here, let me do that. There was a time you didn't know how to do it either, and you had to learn. What if God did that to you? What if everything that you didn't get right the first time, he said, Mark, move! And he did it. Where would you be? You'd be in a monastery somewhere wearing a suit. Uh, I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? Uh, Mark 10. In Mark 10, we'll start in the 27th verse on this idea of being with. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. When you are with Him, there is nothing that is impossible. In fact, He will do the impossible while you are with Him so that you know it's impossible, but not with God. Peter said to Him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. 
homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Kind of strange. But they are with Jesus, and they're concerned. Now, how would Jesus teach them that nothing that happens to them in this life will fail to be rewarded in the next? Well, they're going to live with him and watch what happens next. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. Anywhere you go from anywhere in the world to Jerusalem is considered up in the Bible. It's up because Jerusalem's elevated, but more than that, it's up because it speaks of a spiritual ascent. This is the one city on the planet where God said, My name, my Shem. Those of you with an Acts study guide, you need to know that. My Shem will dwell there. My name will dwell there. And all other nations will be blessed if they get into Shem, my name. Jerusalem's the one city on the earth that God's name dwells. So when you go from anywhere in the world to Jerusalem to enter into the city of God's name, it's considered an improvement. With Jesus leading the way. How about that? The way into the city of God's name is led by Jesus. But anyway. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, He took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to Him. We're going up to Jerusalem, He said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn Him to death and will hand Him over to the Gentiles who will mock Him and spit on Him, flog Him and kill Him. Three days later, He will rise. What would be the very best way for Jesus to teach that no sacrifice in this life is worth comparing to what will be revealed in the kingdom of God? Well, to allow His disciples to walk with Him through His trials so that they could see, like John 14 says, the prince of this world is coming, but He has no hold on me. The world must learn that I love the Father and do exactly what He's commanded. How could the disciples learn? They would learn because they would stand with Jesus in His trials and see what the outcome was. They were with Him. In fact, if you look closely, you find out that there's very few places Jesus ever went without His disciples. The Jewish sages teach that you should follow so closely behind your rabbi that the dust that he kicks up from his feet lands on you. You should be covered in the dust of your rabbi, is what it says. brings new meaning to the idea, shake the dust off your feet if they won't receive your message. It means they're not even worthy of the dust that came from your feet. You understand? They went with Jesus. So they knew that their sacrifice would be rewarded because they saw Him make the greatest sacrifice and it was rewarded. Isn't it interesting? When you walk with God, He said your sons would ask you questions. How many dumb questions did the disciples ask Jesus? Jesus, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Jesus, can we sit on your right hand and left hand? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. They asked Him all the time. And sometimes it says they were sitting grumbling among themselves because none of them dared to ask Him. You get the impression it was the 47th question they had asked Him that day. Why? Because Jesus is a picture of God's relationship with man in the flesh that you can see. And you know what He did? He went with the disciples, or rather they went with Him everywhere, and it prompted questions so that He could teach them the right way to walk. 
They asked him everything from do we pay taxes to everything. And they learned through their relationship. Immediately after Jesus says this, it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. They had seen him do impossible things. They knew he could do anything. So now his life has prompted them to ask. Do you think that they asked for a good thing here? Anybody? When they want to sit on his right and his left, is that really? That's, that's almost anticlimactic to this sermon, isn't it? Because they're asking him something that is really almost selfish. But you know what it is when you live a life that prompts others to ask? A teaching opportunity. See, they were with Jesus and his life prompted them to go, could you do this? And so he teaches them, no, we're not like the Gentiles who lord authority over each other. He said, if you want to be great, you need to serve the least like I'm doing for you. Saints, when we walk with God, it will cause us to ask for the right things and be taught by God. It's one thing to say that we love Him, but does He really have 100% of your heart? 100% of your soul? 100% of your strength? The Lord is close to Ford owners because they are broken and contrite in heart. And much like an ancient doctor who bled his victims, the Ford dealership has been bleeding me recently. And because I'm walking with Jesus, it's no longer just an event. It's no longer just something bad that happens. All of a sudden, it is a trial to let me know where I am in my faith, my trust in Him. And you know how I know it? By what I do. Not what I believe. Not what I say is in my heart, but how did I act when the woman was ugly to me? How did I act when they told me it was $1,500, then I went to pay it and said, no, it's 2000 How did I act? See, what it is is my King of Kings has put me in a test so that He can see and I can see where there needs to be room for improvement. Is that a harsh God or a God that just wants me to be with Him and He's eliminating all of the obstacles? See, We serve a mighty God. We're not going to do it, but there's lots of other scriptures. I'm getting hungry. Luke 14, the 25th verse, don't go there, speaks of them traveling with Jesus. And while they're traveling and seeing Jesus enduring hardship, He's able to teach them about the cost of being a disciple. He teaches them about the cost because they can see the cost and they're concerned. So it's a teaching opportunity. We're going to learn from God by walking with Him. We're going to teach others about God by walking with them. You got me? We're going to walk with Him and walk with them. You cannot walk with Him if you will not walk with them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a famous theologian. He said, when you build walls between you and your neighbor, you have built a ceiling between you and God. You cannot receive from Him if you will not walk with them. Everything you get from Him is for them. This is how the Abrahamic covenant started, and I don't have time to teach it. Turn with me to Acts. I'll read you a couple more scriptures, and I promise we're going to close and close early. Mostly for my benefit. My stomach's growling. Acts 4. My wife actually had a good point, and then uh, 
my father didn't know it, but he, he brought it up too. He said, you know, Eric, uh, uh, we enjoy your preaching. Uh, I said, you know, that is a good point. No. He said, we, we, we enjoy your preaching, but there are times that you cover so much information, we can tell that you get it. But, you know, uh, you might could break those up into some more messages. Uh, he, he's probably right. So we're going to stick with with today. Uh, yeah, y'all can thank him later. He'll take up an offering. Uh, okay, so we're in Acts 4. This uh, this scripture has been a hallmark scripture in uh, in my life. These apostles of Jesus have just uh, endured unbelievable things, and from the religious establishment. And I want you to hear what the word says. Uh, Acts four, starting in verse twelve. Salvation is found. No one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which men must be saved. When they saw, they being the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, no seminary, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. See, when we walk with the king, others will take note. And you may be ordinary. You may be unschooled in every way that they measure. But if your relationship with Jesus is such that when He says walk, you walk, and when He says talk, you talk, your life will be the great effect. In my life, I came from an area, and my pastor before me came from an area, that it was easy for very successful people to look down upon. They told me one time that the best that I would do would be to maybe clean houses for people in the church or start a lawn business. There's nothing wrong with either one of those things. I wasn't insulted because of that. I was insulted because I was called by the living God to preach. But the rich, successful businessman that we were associated with could see No benefit in us because we were ordinary men. One of the men that I admire most on this planet, they told to get a single wide and go be a welder with his four kids. And yet he invested in me unbelievable things that are still benefiting you even though most of you have never met him. We're ordinary men, but we've been with Jesus. Saints, I pray that you be with Jesus. Here come two scriptures that will go quickly. Turn to the right in your Bible. All the T's are together. We're going to be in 2 Timothy. There is a promise. Paul gets kind of excited while he's talking to Timothy. All the T's are together. Don't leave the T's. And in 2 Timothy 2, he says, here's a trustworthy saying. And I don't know, but I get the impression that Paul could almost sing it. If we died... With him, this is Second Timothy two eleven. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. The word contains a promise. To live with him, to die with him, is to reign with Him. 
He's promised us blessings and He provides discipline along the way so that we will know what it is to live with Him. The last thing that we'll do is turn to the last book of the Bible, the second to last chapter, the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. I know some of you were going to maps and concordances. A few of you have a general index. I got it. But the last word that the apostles penned be the 21st chapter, first verse. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth and the first, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Sounds a lot like from beginning to end, God wants to be with you like a man wants to be with a woman, specifically a husband and a wife. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. Starts off with Him wanting us to live. Now He's living with us. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Saints, the place we are headed is a mankind who dwells fully with God and God fully with Him and it is good beyond measure. Go read Isaiah 11 sometime and you will find out just how good it gets, even for the animal kingdom. The best you can do now is dwell with Him personally and taste of that age. And as you taste of it, you'll go share it with other people. And you say, look, I'm walking with Him. And they will ask you, what shall we do? And you can show them how to walk with Him. If all we do is believe, if all we have is creed, we really have nothing. We're naked and poor, just like the letter to the church in Revelation. If we're with Him, we have need of nothing because our God is the God of all provision. Y'all stand to your feet and let's pray that we be with Him.